What's up, everybody? Welcome back to FNA Van Life, the podcast. This is the show where every week we bring you news from the nomadic community or interviews with other nomads so that you can know what it's really like to live life on the road. If you've been listening in for a long time or even just one or two episodes, you'll know that somebody is missing from the podcast today, and that is Frankie. He is very deep into our third van build right now. We purchased a 1985 Toyota Sun Raider, and it had a complete engine failure within the first week of owning it. So right now, he's actually been working for the last like two or three days straight, just pulling the engine out, putting all the pieces off. I had no idea. Like when he's like, okay, we need to swap the engine. I'm like, cool. That's easy. Take one engine out, put one engine in. But it is much more complicated than that. There are so many components that go on the engine, around the engine, tubes and hoses and all that. I don't even know. But so all of these little bits have to get on to the engine block. It's not just the engine. We had to take them all off. Now he's putting it all back together. But it's a very tricky puzzle because if you get one piece of the puzzle wrong, you could actually destroy your brand new engine. So he is working really hard with our friends Chase. Well, Maria Jose is here too. She's not getting deep on the engine, neither am I. Um, but so from Tio Aventura, they've been amazing in hosting us. And Chase and his dad specifically have been really helpful. They've both done engine swaps before, so they've got so much knowledge and experience helping us get this done, which is a huger job than... I realized, I think Frankie knew it was going to be a big job, but for me, I'm just so literal. It's like, swap the engine, swap the engine, put one in, take one out. Apparently not. So if it's something that you need to tackle, we actually just got reached out to on Instagram by a couple who need a new engine. And so they're going to have to pay somebody to do it because honestly, it's so technical. Like every bolt has to be bolted to a specific like tightness. And if you get the tightness of the bolt wrong, you could ruin the engine. It's really complicated. So I'm glad that Frankie is able to handle this job without having to spend another couple thousand dollars at the mechanic, but fingers crossed guys, keep all your fingers and all of your toes crossed for this engine swap because we need to get back on the road. And speaking of life on the road, our guest today is a really interesting guy. He has done two great big world travels on his motorcycle. And so in the years that we've been traveling, we've met a couple people who ride in motorcycles or on motorcycles and they camp or they get hotels. And I think it's really cool. It's an awesome way to travel. You're really like in the elements. There's a huge moto community of people supporting each other um, in their motorcycle adventures. And so Chris, back in the 70s, started an adventure to get from Belfast to Australia. Many things got in the way of that, and he's going to explain it all. But he ended up going the complete wrong way and ended up actually in South America. So we're really excited to have Chris on the show today. He's an author. He wrote the book Going the Wrong Way, and he's working on his next book now because he just did another big adventure 
on his motorcycle to tackle the trip finally to Australia that he didn't get to finish back in the 70s. I think you guys are really going to enjoy this episode, and if you want to check out Chris's book, be sure to check the links in the description below because we'll have all the information to do that. Before we got into van life, and even now, it's so nice to read stories and just like get in the mindset of the traveler. I was definitely consuming so much content about travel and going places and you know specifically if you're looking to do a motorcycle trip or any kind of nomadic trip um, you're gonna want to check out Chris's book so without further ado let's get into today's episode Chris, we're really excited to have you on the show today. Um, you are an adventurer and we love talking to adventurers. And in our last three years of traveling, we've actually met a lot of people who are doing, you know, big trips on motorcycles. And so this is a really cool, I mean, every time we meet somebody who's motorcycling, I think they're the coolest people ever. So <laughs> I'm excited to talk to <laughs> I'm you I'm not going to argue with that. <laughs> <laughs> so we're excited to hear your story about going the wrong way for a while or always. And um, yeah, so if you want to kind of like, take us back and, you know, share your story and your journey and how you got into motorcycle lifestyle and why you decided to go on this big, crazy motorcycle adventure. Yeah. Well, good to go way, way, way back then, way, way back when, as we say, um, back, I was born and brought up in Belfast, Northern Ireland, back in the, well, I was born in 58, so I'm nearly 64 now, but uh, I went to school in Belfast in the seventies and Belfast wasn't the best place to to be in the 70s, it was pretty uh, dodgy. Our school was in the centre of town. And I remember looking out the windows, the front windows, and seeing bombs going off down around the town. Uh, I never got too caught up, but a few friends got shot, got sort of trouble was close at hand. My parents' business got blown up a few times. The uh, family business for a furniture shop. So it was uh, sort of growing up as a teenager, I thought, well, you don't really know much better when you're when you're very young because you don't you no experience of anything else. So when you get to teenage years, I thought I need to get out of here. So decided to go to Australia and for some reason decided to do it on a, on a motorbike. Which is funny because day. Australia is an island. So to drive there is immediately a little bit more challenging. Yeah, and you can't actually get through Myanmar as or Burma as it was then. You couldn't get drive straight at all. So it was really a matter of driving to India and taking the boat from there. Um, yeah, I wasn't really wanting to, wanted to go to Australia, stay there for a year, maybe work there, and who knows what might have happened, might have emigrated. But part of it was sort of for the adventure to go on the motorbike as well, not particularly to ride around the world or anything like that. I think that's sort of more of a, a record, more with uh, Facebook and with YouTube people got into these setting these tasks, these challenges to do. In the seventies, you just wanted to do it for yourself. Mm-hmm. So um, I basically left Belfast, said goodbye to everybody, said I was off to Australia. When I got to London, and the uh, Ayatollah Khomeini very ungraciously took over the American embassy in in Tehran, and the Islamic Revolution started in Iran. So it basically blocked the the road east. So. I had two choices. I could either go home, be very embarrassed, saying hello to my friends after leaving for Australia and going as far as London, or else I decided, well, I'll just go south, so I'll go to Africa. And obviously in the 70s, you didn't have the internet, so all my guidebooks were for Asia and India. 
had no idea about Africa or what was there there at all. So I just headed south, got to uh, went to Israel, couldn't get out of Israel, had to go back to Cyprus and then Syria and Jordan, and then eventually made it to Egypt. Um, and really, without really knowing, it's quite unusual. Realized it was quite unusual at that stage. It was traveling without a destination. As such, usually when you go traveling somewhere, you're going somewhere. You're going to work. You're going on holiday. You're going somewhere. You've somewhere to in mind or in focus. But I was just traveling at the stage for the sake of traveling. So it actually it was a bit chaotic at the time. But when I'm looking back at it, I realized that's where the magic was. Just traveling for the sake of traveling for the journey, rather than for the destination. Uh, so I got to eventually made it drove across the road across the Sahara Desert, down to through Sudan and pretty rough roads and um, areas without petrol. Um, I got into Uganda just after it, I mean, between civil wars and then through Kenya and Tanzania, the, the Rhodesia as it was then. Zimbabwe was just transferring from Rhodesia to Zimbabwe, so they just finishing a civil war. So it was sort of talking between civil wars and uh, unrest on the way down. Got to South Africa in the middle of apartheid and managed to get a a job in a sailing yacht and he raced going to back to Europe, got the bike ship to the States, um, started in LA, went up to Canada, drove across Canada and decided, well, may as well make my way down to see how far South America can get. So I worked in the States a bit, got a bit more money and um, eventually made it down to Bolivia where so ran out of money, ran out of uh, health, I've got hepatitis and the bike was falling apart. So eventually got to Argentina and made it home after a year and a half. So it was quite an extended trip. It was meaning to go away for three months and ended up a year and a half. So um, but, and then it got everywhere. I ended up in Argentina instead of Australia. So that's why the book is going, going the wrong way. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it's the complete opposite place. Like, uh, you know, you're talking about yeah. two completely opposite parts of the world. Like, if you look at a map, you know what I mean? One's in this bottom corner, the other one's in this bottom corner. Yeah. Uh, and I, what I, before we get into all that, what I find interesting is traveling in that time in the 70s, you know, it in in that point in life, I feel like in the, at least in the States, it felt like more of like the, the hippie movement. And this is like kind of the movement that is kind of back now in the sense of like, you know, the van life thing, what we are doing. It's kind of like when people view it, they kind of view it as the the seventies time when the hippies were kind of moving around like that. And, but in the United States, that's what was happening. But where you were, you had all these civil wars going on. And in most of the world, even up into the 80s and into the 90s, you had a lot of civil wars happening. You know, so it's really yeah. interesting to get caught, like, kind of in the middle of these things. What was that like? I know that you grew up in Belfast and, yeah. and you were saying, like, you were kind of used to, you know, the bombings and stuff like that happening. So did that kind of help you out with this uh, getting caught in between these civil wars? I guess it probably did. I mean, I remember getting to South Africa, as I said, it was in the middle of apartheid. So it was a bit, a bit of tension there. And uh, staying with the family and the kids were horrified that I lived somewhere as dangerous as Belfast. Whereas I was sort of horrified, I was scared of being in South Africa at that stage. So everybody has their, your, 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 what you have at home is your norm and everything else is strange. So I suppose my mm -hmm. norm was a bit of, Balance and unrest wasn't maybe slightly easier for me 
than for other people. Um, it was as you, you move away from you move away from Europe to Europe first of all, and then the further you go, the more dangerous it seemed to get. Um, if it just flown into Uganda, I would have been terrified probably, but um, because it's gone through various stages of uh, chaos. So you sort of get used to me, but but at the time, but at the time, and so finally got used to in Uganda. We got was traveling with some guys in the back of a truck, and we got stopped by some child soldiers waving AK forty sevens, and certainly things like that was probably about the scariest time I've ever had. But uh, I think you you sort of especially when you're traveling on your own, you do surprise yourself on your your ability to cope with these things. Mm-hmm. And the fact that you have nobody else to help you out here, one of the reasons I left, I suppose, was to try to challenge myself to um, see if I cope with, with looking after myself and doing everything myself without, you know, we're in the West, we're very much looked after by the, by the social security for the government, by the healthcare systems, by the insurance companies, everything else, everything's sort of looked after, particularly everything's designed to take a risk out of life. Mm-hmm. Or sometimes it's nice just to put yourself in the on not on the front line, but put yourself put yourself away from the health and safety gurus and live take a bit of a risk in life, you know? Oh yeah, we do. We definitely understand that. You know, just this aspect of traveling all the way down to Panama City, Panama, you know, driving through Mexico and Central America and making our way down there. Just like you said, everybody back in Belfast was worried about South Africa and the people in South Africa were worried about Belfast, you know. And so it was very similar for us when we were going south. Uh, Everybody in the United States was worried about Mexico and everybody in Mexico was worried about Guatemala and so on and so forth as we went south. Until basically we got to Costa Rica. But then what kind of happened when we left Costa Rica there, we started seeing a bunch of articles popping up about how dangerous how Costa dangerous Rica Costa Rica is. is becoming right now. And while it's the most visited uh, country in Central America, um, just because of the the ecotourism. Yeah, yeah. No, it's definitely it's uh, stories. People like to tell bad stories more than mm-hmm. like to tell good stories. Um, I mean, the, the sort of post post script to the trip I did in the 70s and 80s was that whenever I, I was I started writing a book at the, after the trip because I thought it was quite unusual I didn't know anybody's done this sort of trip before but then I was halfway through writing the book in about 82, 83 and uh, a guy called Ted Simon wrote a book called Jupiter's Travels and he'd done much the same journey as I'd done so I thought well if he's produced that book there's no point in me doing another one it was only years later they really realised that he would have been 45 year old uh, journalist, for 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 a bit of income behind him, so he had a very different trip than I had as a 21 year old finding my way around the world. So I put pen to paper or hit the keyboards, as we say now, and uh, produced a book three years ago. What about self published on Amazon? Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's, and it's actually it's got rave reviews on Amazon. It seems it's like got tremendous reviews. Yeah, it's. Uh, it's been a bestseller a few months and it's still going very well. It's, I think it's appealing to people sort of from a motorbike point of view, but also it's like a coming of age story as well mm. as the travelogue. So it's, uh, it's hitting quite a few sort of different things. But one of my mates said to me, well, you never actually got to Australia. Why not have another go? 
So a year just after COVID, I still have the same motorbike. I managed to get this motorbike back from South America and got it fixed up. So I decided to take the same motorbike to Australia this time. And a year and a half we left to do two weeks stretches for the Greece and then left the bike there and then went to uh, Dubai and left the bike there and then went to uh, Karachi and Pakistan and then India and then finally Nepal and then flew the bike from Nepal to Australia. So 43 years after that they left Belfast to go to Australia, finally finally made it there. Uh, the guys gave me a tremendous welcome. I can't remember why I was telling you that now. Oh yes, I mean... Um, <laughs> That's a sort of age gets starting to get to me now. The next book's going to be called Adventure Before Dementia. <laughs> I love that title. But it might, it might even be a little bit too late. It might be Adventure During, during Dementia. <laughs> In the early stages of dementia. Do you yes. think that there will be a second book? And what was your kind of experience traveling this time around when you have the internet and you have your cell phone and you have these things and you know the world is more connected and maybe like easier to navigate versus when you did your first voyage back in the 70s well it was a bit different because i didn't go to the same countries as much as, as best i could i decided i've read a couple of books people have gone back and i've experienced myself very often if you go back somewhere the second time you maybe enjoyed it a lot the first time but the second time you go back it's not the same so uh, you get a disappointment. So I decided I wanted to go to different countries and obviously going to Australia as well. It wasn't a different route. But um, apart from that, it was the same. I'm the same guy. I'm just 43 years older and the same motorbike, uh, 43 years older as well. But um, <laughs> the main, probably the main difference is, I suppose I had a bit more money in my pocket. So I didn't have to sleep on the side of the road quite so much. It was a bit more comfortable. Mm -hmm. But the internet has made it change the world, as we all know. But more so when you're traveling, it's communication so easy. You can phone home whenever you want. And, you know, internet's everywhere, 3G's everywhere. Um, you've got Google Maps, you've got uh, GPS, you've got booking.com to find out where you're going to stay. If you want to know somewhere you, I mean, whenever I got to Uganda, it actually drove off the edge of my map in, this, in 1980. Um, I had to swap my map with another guy coming north, and he got my map and I got his map. So still then I didn't know where, where I was going even, you know, whereas now you just tap it into your search engine and you, you find everything, anything you want, you know. Um, but communication is probably the main thing that's different. And the uh, internet has made the world smaller. A little bit less exciting too, because... Sometimes it's quite fun not knowing what's going to be around the corner. Mm -hmm. I would imagine that there's that sense of adventure, not knowing where you're going to sleep in the night or things like that. And, um, you know, for us in Central America, one of the biggest things was crossing borders. Yeah. Um, and so nowadays they have iOverlander and things like that. You can read reviews and you can read, you know, which booths to go to and how, yeah. you know, what papers you need and things like that. But even with all those words helping you out from the other people, it always seems as if something goes slightly wrong in your process. Yeah. Was, was it easier to cross borders in the seventies? Uh, it was probably... There's no, there's a, it's a hard thing to fathom because every border is different. I mean, there's, there's borders we didn't get through in the 70s. We didn't get out of Israel. And funny enough, I tried to go from Israel into Jordan and through to Saudi, which in paper and online was possible. 
But we got to the border and they wouldn't let us through because the guy just decided he didn't like motorbikes or something. We never really found out why not. But he said he wouldn't, we couldn't take our bikes over. And we've come back the next day, it might have been a different experience altogether because all our bikes I knew had gone through, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, Iran was probably my hardest one this time because um, they're not very keen on British or American passports there. Uh, Belfast was able to have an Irish passport as well, so I was able to get in on that. Um, but I did have trouble getting out again because the the borders they would only let one cross one border crossing to to go over land with the motorbike. So having a motorbike does it's got huge advantages and a few disadvantages as well because you can't just fly in and fly out. And the same with having a van, uh, a bit more comfort in the van, mm-hmm. but a little bit harder to communicate. The nice thing about motorbikes not really that you're motorcycling. Because it's actually hot and sweaty and cold and freezing very often, but the fact when you stop, there's no windows between you and the, the, everybody about the place. You, people are much more approachable to people on a motorbike. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes because you're you're actually there with them. But yeah, uh, that's an, it's an interesting point of view because like you don't have the four walls of metal around you and the windows yeah. up, and there's really no guessing of like what's inside there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, whereas motorbikes, people are always, they can see you, they can see you're on your own. You're less uh, less aggressive or something. I don't know. But people, I think people, most people like motorbikes. They've been interested in all these countries and they don't have a bike bigger than a 125. So they'll see an 850. Mm-hmm. They're immediately drawn to it. So mm-hmm. it is quite a nice way of getting an introduction to people. Sometimes too many. I mean, sometimes in India, you'd be surrounded by kids. You'd, poking and grabbing things you just you you you're given nothing to have a van you can close the door and close yourself in as well you know yeah <laughs> so let's talk but, about like the logistics of traveling on a motorcycle um obviously in the van that we travel in we do have all of these luxuries of like the toilet and the shower and the kitchen and the bed and you know you're basically bringing a tiny apartment with you everywhere you go so when you're traveling on a motorbike, obviously you could have a tent on the back and things like that. But like, what are the logistics of like living off of your motorcycle for an extended period of time? Yeah, well, obviously, I'd say weight's more of an importance because you don't have more weight to carry on a bike. If it falls over, you're not going to be able to pick it up and so on. And there's a fashion these days that bikes have got bigger and have huge amounts of storage place on them as well now. And they've got old mod cons practically. Heated seats and heated uh, handlebars and everything, but I preferred if I, whenever I left originally, I had stuff loaded, packed on, ever tied on everywhere. And I realized most of the stuff you bring with you, you never use. Mm-hmm. So you try and get rid of the stuff you don't want to carry and just use the take the important stuff. Very often, less is more. I think. Um, you always need a few tools. You need to change clothes and so on. But I try and take really what you would take for a long weekend and then take a few more t-shirts and stuff and obviously your waterproofs but and a few tools but spare parts and things like that it's so easy to get um things sent across from abroad or in places like africa and south america they they make everything that if you break something they'll make you a new one mm-hmm. um it was interesting being on an older bike this um compared to the, the new uh New machines are all computerized uh, control systems in them now. So if anything breaks in that, 
they are stuffed. I'm not sure how old your van is. Mm-hmm. But I think since since not made in the last sort of 10, 15 years, it's usually got a computer sort sorting all the electronics out. Mm-hmm. Nice thing having an older bike or an older car is if something breaks, you can fix it. The trouble is, of course, things are going to break more often because it's old. So it's a bit of a catch twenty two there. But um, the newer machines are harder to repair, harder to repair, and usually they don't repair. They they just pull a bit out if something breaks or something doesn't working. They'll remove that piece and buy a new bit and put a new bit on. So the mechanics are more replacing. They're just replacing things rather than fixing things. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we we actually just kind of talked about some of the stuff. We did a consultation with somebody who's about to get on the road, and he said, you know, one of our like when we first got on the road, what did we like? What happened? We expected nice. One of the first things I said is, you're going to pack your van with way too many things, and you're going to get rid of half of them on your trip. Yeah, it's the same for the bike. You know, you always we tend to pack more than what we need. Uh, just because we th- we're trying to think of all the things and we're thinking about yeah. situations, mm-hmm. and you forget that there are stores everywhere and yep. that people purchase things all over the planet. And so you could usually find the thing that you need when you actually need it, where you actually need it, instead of carrying it with you for a year for that one time you might need it. And just exactly. like in South Africa, uh, where they would just make you a part that fits that spot. We had the same experience in Nicaragua when we had a gasket go bad on one of our propane lines. And a guy had some plastics that, from something else in a box and sure enough made us a plastic that sealed perfectly that fit inside that hose. You know, So people in these other places are a lot more resourceful than you know the, the first world countries that we're used to. Yeah, they're more used to repairing things. We're very much a throwaway culture here if something's broken you throw it away and you buy throw it away and buy a new one yeah it kind of shows the difference between like being useful and uh being able to reutilize and being wasteful yeah totally um it's like a washing machine breaks down it's hardly worth getting anybody to fix it because it'll cost you more to fix it than a new one will Mm -hmm. you just Mm -hmm. end up throwing it away and buying a new one but uh no so it was interesting from that point of view as well because whenever I left this time I had another guy with me um, as far as he, as far as uh, Israel and then he got cold feet and went home so left me on my own but uh, I do quite like travelling on my own it forces you to be much more um, sort of open and friendly with people it means you have to talk to people if you want company you, if, you're, if you're with a couple or company you tend to retract into your own company more sometimes and people are less inclined to maybe talk to you as well from you if you're in a strange city or something like that um mm-hmm. i don't know if you find out you've obviously traveling as a couple which is nice too because you got you do have company but it does um cut cut you off a wee bit sometimes i think having somebody with you yeah i don't think neither of us have ever done the trip ourselves so we don't know the opposite but i would say that it definitely oftentimes like frank will be approached when he's by himself or i'll be approached when i'm by myself somebody who wants to chat and talk and they'll be like oh like come on over you can meet my you know other half or whatever but like if you're sitting in a restaurant and there's two people at the table and they're talking you know they're not gonna tell you yeah 
Yeah, nobody's yeah. Gonna you. nobody's gonna come over and interrupt, you know. Um, so it definitely, you know, when we were in hostels and stuff, that's why we started staying at hostels a little bit the further yeah. that we got into Central America because we found that it was a really great way to meet other people, yeah. whether they were traveling in vans or backpacking or whatever the case may be. Um, just because you're in this environment where everybody's there to meet somebody or talk to, you know, and get to know each other and get to know, so. get your information, where is where to go and where not to go and that sort of thing. Yeah. yeah. So everybody's like in a friendly mood and wants to chat and is like open to all of these things. So, and I think kind of like you, we were very open to the aspect of meeting locals and like locals telling us kind of where to go. Cause we want to experience things more like a local than like a tourist, even though we would be still experiencing it as a tourist because we've never experienced it before. At least we could get more of an authentic experience rather than, than like the top five things to do on TripAdvisor. Correct. It's like, what would the yeah. local actually want? So we do? wound up finding ourselves in hot springs that, only locals would go to or like a swimming hole that locals would be at and like we could totally tell that like we stick out like a sore thumb because you know we are the only non-latin people in this specific area you know and even like food and just everything in general we always try to um get that authentic experience uh so I think traveling, like you said, kind of earlier in this podcast, you know, without a a destination in mind, but more like traveling with the journey, you know, allowing things to, or the adventure, like things just happening around us. And then we find ourselves in places like on the way to the direction that we think we're going. Yeah, no, it's definitely uh basically you don't well the trouble is is everybody has a time scale now ever when we had to fly home at the bit a certain place at a certain time we've always got some sort of destination these days but mm-hmm. um so as you're in your 20s it's easier the older you get the more responsibilities you get you have to be back in time you have to do things it seems mm-hmm. to be the you got you got to do these things when you're younger when you've no responsibility <laughs> Yeah, that was probably one of the biggest differences for your two trips is that you know you didn't have a business and kids back home and all these other things kind of weighing on your mind and your heart and like when you're young and you can just take off and your parents are worrying about you but you're not worrying about them you know no (laughs) so it was a big difference i also uh, getting a little bit tarder a little bit more uh, a few more aches and pains these days than how you would have had when i was 21 Mm-hmm. for driving so, all day yeah well you mentioned let's talk about like rest and sleeping so you mentioned that you know your first trip you were trying to be very thrifty thrifty so like sleeping at the side of the road i'd love to hear some stories about that and then like you know now it's more like the booking.com and getting the hotels and you know so did you do any camping on the second trip and maybe some stories about like you know your camping experiences on your first trip and some of these um maybe more dodgy places well, the trouble with camping is uh, problems with wild animals and wild people are the two dangerous things. Um, the likes of Africa, you're sort of worried about animals and so on. Uh, the likes of South America, you're more worried about people finding it. If you're in a tent, you're, you do feel a bit exposed. So certainly when I was in South America, I would usually stay in a hostel or something, same as yourselves. Um, and also in Africa, as much as possible. Um you know, one time in Africa, I've got a couple of pictures. I actually slept, put my, parked, put my tent up in a 
a petrol station, a gas station forecourt because I couldn't put it. I didn't want to go out in the countryside. The countryside was uh, all the animals are there, and you could hear them squawking mm -hmm. and squealing at night. And I didn't want to be at the side of the road or somewhere where there's people could see me either. So parked it's parked up in front of the petrol pumps just so because felt reasonably safe there. But um, it is always a worry. You're, you are exposing a motorbike more so than in a, in a van. Um, it's just part of the things. I did take a tent with me. I camped a couple of nights this year, the last, the last trip. Um, and your mind does, you hear things in the middle of the night, you do, you do get worried, especially when you're on your own. One stage I was camping on the Iran border. I couldn't close the border, so I couldn't get through. And I would have to drive too far to find a hotel. So camped up with a in a truck stop. And I heard these dogs barking and growling at night. I was imagining sort of hyenas and, wild dogs running around the place and uh, when I met the truck drivers for breakfast the next morning there's a couple of little puppies came out and they were lovely wee puppies you know and your mind your mind works overtime whenever you're lying in a tent in a dark night with it. you don't know what's out there you know <laughs> but uh, no the tent's always handy to have and it's also nice camping out if you get somewhere peace and quiet there's nobody about but um I mean, one of the nicest places to travel in the trader was Iran, which is the place I was worried about most going to because of all the stories about well, it stopped me going at all the last time. And obviously there's various trouble between the West and, and Iran since. But I think it, going back to what we're saying at the start about people's preconceptions, um, you, you go to Iran because preconceiving that the people are going to be very anti-Western, anti-whatever, but they're actually the nicest people met on the whole journey because mm -hmm. they welcomed people come from the West to see as, as a return to normality and they just wanted to be friendly, you know. Mm -hmm. um, a couple of times they, they have a their own credit card systems now because they, they can't use Visa or, or uh, MasterCard. Mm -hmm. So you go to the petrol stations, some of the petrol stations would only take cards, so I'd have to ask a driver to fill my tank and I'd give him cash. But a couple of times I filled my tank up and the guy said to me, you know, that's fine, on you go. Enjoy enjoy our country and have a nice day sort of thing. Wow. I've never had that anywhere else in the world, you know. Mm -hmm. And they really genuinely want you to enjoy the country and go back with good stories about their, their hospitality. I've actually heard that from a few other people as well that um, we've talked with. Uh, actually, one of them, I think, lives there now. Um, and it, it's kind of wild because, it, it, once again, it goes back to those, like, you know, those those things that you're told throughout your time of life and you're fed through news and media and whatnot. And it gives you this preconception of what a place might be. But then you, when you actually live it and you're there – it's amazing how it becomes your favorite place with your favorite people. Uh, we kind of had a similar experience in El Salvador. Yeah, El yeah. Salvador had the civil war for many years, and then they were playing with the gangs for a long time. And then when we were there, like things had just kind of gotten cleaned up from the new president and all this stuff. Everybody was so welcoming and excited and happy to talk and smiling and come eat my food and come see my hotel and come do this. And yeah. they were just so excited to show off their country. Because I think 
like you said, it's like it has this bad reputation and they want people to know that like it's not everything that you hear. Yeah. And yeah. and I will even go as far as to say is it's always been a safe place for tourists to travel. It but you know, since it got a bad name, um, like most of the stuff that you would hear about was actually very local based. Like it would be locals who would actually have more of an issue. Uh, than say the tourists, like for instance, even like Jamaica, um, when we were traveling in Jamaica a little while back, we asked the driver that was with the family, like, Hey, we want to drive our own car around Jamaica. Like, so we're going to rent a car and drive around. What do you think about that? He actually said, listen, you guys have actually the best, you will have the best experience driving around Jamaica by yourselves because the people will actually, if anybody was ever to do anything, towards you the people would come and save you because that's what they're taught you know so i would have more of a rough time driving by myself rather than you guys driving yourself yeah no there's a sort of saying people say that uh, the less people have the more they'll give Mm -hmm. so when you find out in quite a few countries have been in um i mean the other one of the other countries i found very hospitable was sudan and they're having a lot of problems 40 years ago. They still obviously have them now. Mm-hmm. Uh, these countries just keep going on and on and on. But the likes of Iran, we forget that the average population age, average age of the population is probably about 30. So most of them have actually been born since the, the American embassy was taken over in 1979. So most people, mostly young kids, don't know anything about it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's ancient history for them. Whereas mm-hmm. the governments are all older men; they're all running. They've got memories go go way way back further. You know, they're they don't forgive, forgive, and forget so quick. Whereas the younger young kids, they just want to meet up with people, have a good time, and enjoy themselves. You know, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and obviously, and be friendly with, enjoy people meeting people that are traveling. We'll learn from yeah, them too. Yeah. So it is. It's a it's a two way transition of information. You're learning from them, and they're learning from you as well. You like to think, you know. In in your travels in these countries, have you ever had any battles with sickness, and how did you deal with those if you did? Well, when I got to South America, I got to uh, to Bolivia, um, and I caught. Brazil was presumably hepatitis uh, because I couldn't. I got st- stuck for a couple of weeks in a hotel. I couldn't. Uh, it's too weak to go anywhere. It was a bit of a disaster because I burnt all my money by staying in a hotel. So ran out of money. I had to get money sent home. That was basically the end of the trip uh, because the bike was falling apart. And you just got to the stage I was falling apart. The bike was falling apart, and uh, I was run- running out of everything. Um, which the reflection, looking back, was the good thing about that was because I got was able to get some money sent over. I was able to get the bike shipped back home, so I was able to keep it and do the seller trip afterwards. Whereas originally I was going to sell it and just use that money to get home. But um, yeah, again with the internet, it's so much easier to contact home if you need run out of money if you need medical help it's it's much easier to do that nowadays whereas in mm-hmm. the 80s it would have taken you a week to just to get a, a bank transfer sent over um, 
communications. I mean, I remember phoning home from from Cairo. It took all day to book a telephone call. It cost about five pounds, which is probably about fifty dollars now, to make a five minute phone call. So it was expensive as well. Um, but yeah, no, I've been pretty lucky with health the whole time. Um, you That's take a right of rules and don't try not to fall off your motorbike. <laughs> <laughs> That's always the key, right? It's that, that whole experience, you know, sounds kind of scary. And it's almost like the epitome of what everybody worries about before they get on the road or before they do a big trip. Like, what happens if I get sick? What happens if I run out of money? What happens, you know, if all the things go wrong? And so in that moment, like, how were you feeling? Were you scared? Were you stressed out? Obviously, you were feeling terrible from being so sick and run down. Um, you know, what was the emotion like for you at the time? Well, it was pretty scary because Bolivia is about the worst place in the world to get out of because it's there's no seaports there. It's a landlocked country. It's high up in the Andes, so it's hardly early roads and the railways are pretty bad as well. So... And I didn't have the money to fly out. So I had to end up, um, scary enough, I had to put the bike on a train to take a train. I found there's a train going to Buenos Aires from La Paz. But there was horrendous storms and the railway lines got washed away. So I ended up back on the road. So you can imagine what the roads are like when the railway lines are washed away. The roads were pretty bad too. So it was a, it was a scary enough time. Um I was afraid. I mean, some of the coincidences happened. It was quite amazing. I met a crowd of girls and students in, in Machu Picchu in Peru. I didn't even get there. I just took a chat to them as you do and took a photograph, a few photographs. Thought no more about it until I got to uh, Buenos Aires about a month later. And I was so tired. I got off the train. I just fell asleep in the train station and on, on the park bench on the waiting room bench and little did I know one of this girl's friends had walked past and seen a foreign bike sitting there and she Angela had been telling her about meeting us a couple of weeks before and she actually came down to the station La Paz is a huge city it's the size of London mm-hmm. um, and just coincidentally she came down saw me sitting there brought me home to her, like, to her parents house uh, organised shipping the bike home put me up give me food drink water everything I needed to get better Mm-hmm. So it's things like that happen a couple of times. You 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 put yourself in a you're putting you're going away in these journeys. You are putting yourself at risk. If you're going to say what if I do this, what if that, what if you ask too many what ifs, you'll never go. Mm-hmm. You know if you're going to be worried about everything, it's not the right journey for you. You know you're better just taking a package here to to Las Vegas or whatever. You know. Um, <laughs> You really, you do have to. You are saying goodbye to health and safety, insurance, to medical help. To you are putting risks on the line, but it's. A, I suppose it's a bit of an adrenaline buzz too. You're by putting getting yourself out of your comfort zone. You're becoming much more aware of what's going on around, around you. You're getting your senses um, sharpened. You know, it's 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 part of the part of the deal. I suppose really, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And I think you find moments and you find your courage and your strength and your resolve and your, you know, this the mind power to get through it or finding the connection or the right person or even just like trusting, you know, the universe or whatever to like 
have that person walk by that like, oh, they're like, oh, I know Chris, like, come on over to the house. Or like, even just a stranger being like, hey, like you look like you could use some help. Like, what can we do for you? Um, Yeah. So I think in those moments, that's, if you're somebody who wants to travel, whether it's solo or with another person or whatever, the biggest growth and like, I don't know, like, um, pride that you'll have in yourself after the fact is getting through these tough moments. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Definitely. I mean, certainly when I was away in 21, it was very much sort of a coming of age experience, I suppose, between childhood and manhood. Um, so this journey, I'm sort of at the other end of a, my working life and just coming up to retirement. So it's more of a coming of old age journey, I suppose, it's a, which is similar enough in a way, because, you know, it's a change when you retire, you're changing your, your status in the world from being working uh, income gainer, income earner to um, having more time and maybe less money at a different 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 stage of life. Mm-hmm. Um, and I suppose one of the, I've looked around, seen friends that are retiring and they do very little with themselves. They've been working all their lives. They retire and they end up in, working in the garden, pushing up pushing the lawnmower for the rest of their lives. And I thought must be more more to life than. We didn't work for 40 years just to do a bit of gardening, you know. So it was a bit of a challenge for myself to see if I could do what I liked doing when I was 20, when I had time in my hands then, um, to challenge myself to see if I could still do what I can do what I did then. So I was pleased enough that I could. It'll be a little bit slower and a little bit more painful sometimes, but still got there in the end, you know. Mm-hmm. Did you feel that the experience was as joyful um, and rewarding in the end as your first journey? Well, I never found any. The journey then and the end, I always find a bit of a disappointment because the end of the journey means it's the end of the, the trip. So you're, you're, you're finished, it's final, you're going home. So it's really mm. a disappointment when you're there for the journey. It's you don't really want to find a destination. So even like the death of the journey, it's the destination, you know. Mm-hmm. I remember getting to South Africa, going to Cape Town, and we drove down to the Atlantic coastline, mm-hmm. thinking this would be a tremendous buzz, a tremendous feeling of elation that I finally got driven the whole way down, down through Africa. Mm-hmm. And all I got was this feeling of disappointment because realized that was the journey over, you know, and what are we going to mm-hmm. do now? And if, yeah. Find out a wee bit when I got to uh, Sydney, got the Opera House and the bridge and got the photographs. And it was really a disappointment because that's what I was there for. But if I wanted to go and see the Opera House, I would have flown there. They could have got there in 24 hours, you know, rather than a year and a half or 20, 43 <laughs> years, as it actually was. <laughs> so it's, uh, you know, it's, to me, the magic's in the journey rather than the destination. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I could definitely feel that. Um, you know, I remember we were leaving Panama City, Panama, and I remember looking at Alex and saying, like, we did it, you know, like, now what? Mm-hmm. And like feeling sad, you know, yeah. and I didn't feel sad about the journey that we just had. I felt sad about the fact that it was over, um, yeah. at least in the general sense of like what we set out to do. And I knew that driving back north, I would kind of be excited about coming back north and being back in the States and seeing family and friends and stuff. But like this moment of life that we had together um, is now going to be just a past story. 
you know, and, um, and it's amazing how fast a year plus goes by. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Like you set off when you're leaving, you're like, oh, this is going to be like the biggest adventure ever and all of these places and all of this time. And then the time passes and you have all these amazing stories and experiences and, you know, all the highs and the lows and, you know, everything that happened. But then at the end of the day, it does come to an end. So I think kind of what we're all trying to say in a roundabout <laughs> way is don't don't make a like end destination, you know. Yeah. Like just go out, explore and enjoy, and you're gonna find that no matter where you go in life, no matter what you do, you're gonna love it because you're mm-hmm. enjoying the the journey and the experience of this adventure that we call life. Yeah, no, there's definitely a life a life lesson because people number of people you talk to and so I don't really like this job, but whenever next year I'm going to get promotion or next year I'm going to get a bigger house, next year I'm going to get have more kids or the kids are going to leave, whatever it is. People are always, you find to go through life looking forward, always looking forward to what's going to happen next year without realizing that this is life today. This is what you've got. This is what you're going to be looking mm-hmm. back in five years' time thinking, do you remember the days we did that? Uh, people do, the sort of bad habit people have is too busy looking forward to what's going to happen. Whereas what's going to happen in the end is you're going to get old and you're going to die, you know, and that's going to be the end of it. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's, that's, that's where your destination is. You know, you got to enjoy yeah. the journey in between, you know. Uh, I read an article once back when I was working in an office that said the happiest that you'll ever be is before you go on the trip because you've planned like the planning of the trip is the happiest that you'll ever be because you yeah. have all these hopes and dreams and imagination yeah. and without, the, without the pain. <laughs> yeah. And then you, no layovers, no airline delays, no, yeah. you know, sleepless nights in a bad hotel or whatever, mm-hmm. like disappointing foods or, Oh, you thought the Coliseum was going to be this, but it turned out it was just a big long line or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. So, and the most sad you'll ever be is when you get back from that trip and you realize that it's over. Mm-hmm. And yeah. then, so now it's like, okay, well I need to get that next high and start planning the next trip. So Chris, what is your next adventure? <laughs> well, the bike's in Sydney, you know, it's in Melbourne. Um, I like to get back. Australia is an incredible country. It's, it's the size of the States. You know, it's huge. It's, uh, it's 25 million people there instead of, for 300 million people so it's a big empty country I'd like to get back and see a bit more of it but then I'd like to, to ship the bike to the States and sort of come back that way and do a bit of a tour in the States because a lot of my book sales are in the States and uh, maybe work with that, with that somehow um, and see some old friends as well so looking forward to that um, yeah, there's always you gotta have another trip on the on the horizon somewhere, don't you? Mm-hmm. Maybe you'll uh, end up at the Arctic Circle or uh, heading up to Alaska. Uh, I don't quite think. I think it's quite cold up there. Only in the <laughs> winter. In the summer, it's not bad. Not too bad in the summer. Yeah, you have to you plan know, it the seasons. I'd like to get up to to Canada again. Anyway. Um, mm-hmm. But as I say, what I do these days, there's always, I mean, the number of people I spoke to, I'd love to do what you do, but I haven't got time. Well, we didn't have, I didn't have time either, but we had time to go away for two weeks and then leave the bike and fly home and work mm-hmm. for another two or three months and then go out again and do the stages like that. So there's always a way, you know, if, if you're determined enough to do something, you always find a way to do it. Mm-hmm. You know? 
America is looking forward to seeing the States again. COVID's obviously been a bit of a uh, disaster for any traveler everywhere. Um, it's interrupted so many things, travel being one of the main ones. So it's nice that that's international. finished. Yeah. But I think we're kind of on the other side of that a little bit now and people are starting to feel more confident moving and yeah. there's less restrictions on where you can and can't go. And so honestly, if if you have a will, there's a way to you know travel. And I think that people just need to take the dive and start planning that next trip or adventure or like taking a gap year, to, you know, like Frankie and I, we were supposed to just be on a gap year and now it's three and a half years later. And we're still on our gap still year. Gapping. <laughs> yeah, yeah, still gapping. gapping. <laughs> We've turned our gap into a business. So, you know, it's uh, it's uh, for us, it, it is a lifestyle that we want to continue to live. And uh, I think you know, the journey and the process of it all is, is very entertaining for us, you know, um, and and fulfilling. Well, as you say, if you if you enjoy your work, you never have to work a day in your life because you're just enjoying every day. It works yeah. easy then, you know? Yeah. Like, it's beautiful. We get to have this conversation with you. And, uh, you know, this is part of, part of our work. This is part of our job. And we're so blessed to have it and be able to have awesome guests like you on on the podcast and, you know, get to meet people in person as well because of what we do now, you know? And, uh, you know, we are lucky to be in this time in life where we do have the internet to help us uh, continue this dream and this journey uh, and not have to be kind of stationary in a specific place. Yeah. No, you're very lucky. And I'm, I guess I'm lucky too, being able to be self-employed. I'm able to set my time and do a uh, very understanding wife as well, obviously. But uh, no, it's a great experience. So if folks want to find your book and, you know, read all about this adventure that you took, um, why don't you let us know where they could find it and, you know, maybe some of like the, just like a synopsis of what they can expect from uh, going on this book reading adventure with you. <laughs> well, the best place is Amazon's got uh, cut it on as paperback. It's on eBay. It's on uh, as an ebook and on as an audio book as well. Uh, it's available anywhere in the world. Again, the technology of being able to deliver a book to anywhere in the world is incredible. Um, I've also got my website, chrisdonaldson.world, but the best bet's probably Amazon um, for, for all the different medias. No, it's, it's been a good book. It's not just a motorbike book. It's not just a travel book. It's a bit of a, um, it's a, bit of a story about it growing up as well, different parts of the world, different ideas different uh outlooks in different cultures so hopefully people enjoy it did you do the audio aspect of the book yourself no i got a uh a nephew of my wife's to do it because he's 21 and i thought it was a, it was quite unusual writing a book about when i was 21 because i'm now 62 so i could look at things from a different perspective but i thought didn't really want a 61 year old 62 year old voice reading the part of a of a 21-year-old. So uh -huh. I got a 20-year-old with a Belfast accent to do it so you can still um, get that okay. But a lovely uh, review yesterday, actually, somebody said the audiobook and they said they were enjoying it so much they actually slowed down to this, slowed their car down so they could t t listen to the book for longer in the car. <laughs> so that was quite good. 
were late for the uh, appointment because they were listening to the book. That's amazing. <laughs> that's like the best review you could get. I'll say that yeah. I'm very interested in the idea of this uh, audiobook because I like to like work and as I'm doing my work outside, I could throw the audiobook on and listen. Yeah. So I'm looking forward to purchasing it and then and getting that experience. Mm-hmm. Well, man, might not help your productivity, but you might enjoy it, hopefully. <laughs> well, so just to wrap things up, at the very beginning of the podcast, you said something about how you decided not to write the book in the 80s because somebody else had already written a book that was, you know, kind of a similar vein of, you know, motorcycle travel and whatnot. And I think that a lot of, you know, budding entrepreneurs or creatives do that same thing. It's like, oh, well, I can't start a blog about riding a motorcycle. Somebody's already did that. Oh, I can't, you know, start a YouTube channel about cooking fried chicken. Somebody's already done that, you know, but there's, there's space in the world for everybody's creative projects. And so if you have a passion or a desire to share something that you're working on, you should absolutely do it. And obviously now, you know, the timing of the release of your book with the internet and the worldwide distribution and the audio books, like things like that, even just self-publishing wouldn't have been possible you know, way back in the day to the degree that it is now. So everything that's happens right. in good time. But the like, best thing, the best thing about that, the best thing that's been invented was spell checker. I could never, <laughs> I could never, I could never have written a book before spell checker came out. <laughs> you would have needed a really good editor to go through and, yeah. you know, make all I'm those like, corrections. Even with spell checker, I'm going to need a really good editor. I can tell you that much. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, basically the message is that like for anybody who's dreaming about doing something, they should just go ahead and do it. Yeah, stop <laughs> asking what if and just go for it. Yeah. Definitely. You know? yeah, I guess uh, the, the decision, decision we've all come to is just get out there and do it. That seems to be how every episode of this show ends. Yeah. Get just out. go out there just get and, out do, and it. do it. Yeah, no, people do think things too much, too much, too much for forward planning, too much worry, too much deliberation just go and do it yeah Amen. i love that well thank you so and much we really appreciate you having uh, having you on the show and we'll be sure to drop all of your links and where everybody can find the book um in the show notes below appreciate that love you talking to you make sure you subscribe to their youtube channel fna van life love it all that